Okay, hello and welcome back, everyone. This is Ben Chiriboga, the Chief Growth Officer here at Nexel. I am coming to you with another This Legal Life podcast. I am very, very excited to be speaking with Simon Tubman. Simon, how are you? And welcome to the podcast. I'm very well. Thank you, Ben. And thank you for having me on the podcast today. Yeah, we are very excited to get into a bunch of issues here, a bunch of matters, a bunch of topics, leadership, the changing nature of leadership, what does it mean to be a lawyer, um, lawyer leader, or even just a leader in a law firm. Um, we're going to, of course, talk about your um, your four principles um, that were laid out in your new great book, The Heart of Practice. But before we uh, get to all of that, we were talking a little bit about uh, and laughing, quite frankly, between the two of us, you are a former lawyer who is now a consultant to lawyers um, and writing great books. Um, but there's something about once you're in the legal industry, you can't get out. Uh, is it Stockholm Syndrome? What is it about uh, once uh, you're touched by the legal industry not being able to, to escape? I, I, I don't know. Uh, I meet lots of people who, like me, went into it, became disillusioned and tried to leave it all together, um, but found it very difficult to uh, to uh, leave it all together. And so they reinvent themselves within the industry in some shape or form. And in my case, that's what happened to me um, some over 30 years ago now. Um, so I, I, I practiced as a litigation lawyer doing criminal defense work for about four to five years and uh, realized I didn't like it um, and went back to university, did postgrad studies in business. And so I became very interested in the business of law uh, at that stage. And we're talking now the um, early 90s. So um, you were very much a spring chicken back then. And, um, you know, I have to say that a lot has changed in 30 years, but a lot hasn't changed. Uh, the old French saying, plus ça change. Um, and we're still Ooh. grappling with, I think, some fundamental issues uh, in this business, and I call it a business rather than just a profession, uh, that I think we we need to really deal with if we are to uh, be relevant and uh, successful in the future. So, um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it is about the law that stays in your blood, but the, there's obviously something maybe quite noble about it. We don't want to let go of altogether. <laughs> Possibly, possibly, maybe a combination of, you know, sunk cost bias and the nobility and maybe just the, um, those who leave the practice have a sort of, they have an inclination toward, um, something like, uh, the truth or they, they're dreamers. They see a vision and they see the, uh, the potential for change and they want to enact that. And that's how they define their life. Something like this, you know, maybe, maybe a combination of, of all of I those things. That's probably right. And I think the people who do get out are probably happier. Yes, I agree. Why don't we go back, actually, before we get into the substance, which um, in part is, is uh, your new book. Um, you've written four books prior to that. But even before this, you know, you talked about how the business of law um, has certainly changed, even starting in the 90s. Um, it's an unfair question, but I'll ask it anyway, because, you know, I'm the one with the mic here, <laughs> with the mic here. How has the business of law changed in some ways? How has it stayed the same? Is there anything that, you know, really resonates with you and um, sort of grips you whenever, whenever I ask that question? Oh, yeah, I think it, it has changed a lot. Uh, it's modernized a great deal. And I think it's had to because we are seeing um, increasing competition and consumer choice these days, which wasn't prevalent in the early 90s. And that consumer choice has been increased as a result of uh, the increasing number of lawyers and law firms uh, offering more specialist expertise uh, and also um, access to legal services through uh, technology, uh, which you'll be familiar with. So um, so from that point of view, I think firms have had to become much more uh, aware of the business of law and run their firms less as a gentleman's club and much more as a business. And, you know, the manifestations of that are, are clear for all to see. But I think that what hasn't changed is perhaps um, a, a reluctance to change in a very conservative profession and hold on to a business model that hasn't always um, uh, or isn't today perhaps serving uh, firms as well as perhaps it could do. And what I'm referring to is the partnership model. Now, of course, it has worked very well for firms in the past and it's become it has been very profitable for, for firms over the years. 
But what, what I'm witnessing is um, um, as the expectations on uh, law firms and their leaders change, uh, I think there's increasing flexibility um, in the approach to uh, running businesses. And we're seeing that with, I think, a lot of startups as well these days who are uh, adopting a much more corporate model, uh, which accommodates the needs of its various stakeholders uh, much more than the partnership model, which is often just built around the interests of the uh, the shareholders or the, or the partners. Mm, yeah. What, um, you know, whenever I ask this question, I've gotten so many different answers to the question I just asked you around what, what's, what's certainly changed. Um, and, and everybody usually gives a, um, uh, a similar answer. I want to ask, you've also had the opportunity to be, um, in house, um, for some, for some time. What do you think about the changing nature of the actual character of the clients and the client and the, and the way that clients have been buying? Over the course of your years, have you what have you seen? Have you seen a more sophisticated client? Have you seen a much more empowered client? Have you seen a savvier buyer of, of legal services? And to what degree do you think that that is sort of pushing this this change where there where there is change happening? Yeah, uh, look, I, I think uh, I think a combination of all those things you said. I think people are, are much more savvy these days when going about choosing uh, the legal services provider, and whether you are a, a business client, uh, in-house counsel, or a, a private client, um, I, th- I think uh, people are far more discerning in terms of uh, their choice. Uh, and they're much more aware because there's much more information out there. Um, what triggers that decision obviously varies. If you're an in-house counsel or a business client, you may have a, a different criteria. But I think certainly okay. the, the the client is becoming much more choosy and, and um, is in a position to make, I think, more informed decision about what he or she is looking for. But this this is also, I think, another trigger for firms who, um, in an attempt to become more client-centric, um, are having to listen to the perspectives of their clients, something that they were reluctant to do. I, I mean, I, I don't know about you over there in the, the US, but I still come across many firms that sort of put their hands up in horror and say the idea of asking their clients is is just ridiculous. They come to us for advice. We don't take advice from them. Right. You know, that's the attitude. Um, yeah, I'm right. saying, look, if you're in a business, you need to understand what your various stakeholders think and perceive of you. And, you know, I can recall... Um, even back back when I did serve in-house with the law firm as a marketing manager, one of the first jobs I did for them was to interview their top 20 clients and ask questions like, why do you choose them when you have a choice? Right. What do you like about them? What don't you like about them? And what suggestions would you like to see that would help improve the service and the outcomes that they're getting for you? And, and those simple questions provided some quite profound insights. And I'm still gobsmacked these days that there are um, – partners in law firms who think they know it all, um, who uh, feel it's not necessary to actually ask their clients those sort of questions. So that, I think, is an indicator that, uh, you know, clients um, are not prepared to tolerate arrogance um, too much longer. Yes. Okay, so that's a nice setup, uh, I think, for um, – let's, let's dive a little bit in, into just really quickly before we get into leadership – into the history of writing books. You know, it's fascinating to me for somebody who's never written four books, let alone four books within the context of legal, legal, the legal industry management. I'm, um, I'm a very big fan of, uh, Bruce McEwen and his sort of, uh, his view. Yeah. Um, whenever I was transitioning, I think I've talked about this on a podcast before. Whenever I was transitioning into the business of law, Bruce's books, who I've now had the chance to meet, uh, interview and we, even shared lunches together in New York whenever I was living there. Uh, so sort of meeting your heroes in a way. And Bruce is fantastic. Shout out to Bruce if you're, if you're listening for some reason. And Janet, the both of them. Um, what's it like writing books about the legal industry? And, you know, what, yeah, like that, that, that very, um, that very um, what's, the, what's the phrase that I'm looking for? That very stratified group of people who are writing books about the legal industry from, from, from a certain perspective. Um, yeah, tell us about that process. Well, I, I guess, you know, like uh, you talked about Bruce there being a, an inspiration for you. I had an inspiration in the 90s, and that was David Meister, whose writings still inspire me today. And I think he was probably one of the all-time greats. And I met David several times. In fact, I even interviewed him, um, and I wanted to better understand where he was coming from. Very, very bright man, far brighter than I ever, ever was or ever will be. Um, but even on the shelf behind me here in my library, which um, your, your, your listeners can't see, but you can, 
Um, I've sure. probably got all of uh, David's books. And, um, and I remember at the time, um, I didn't have a book, but um, I went and sold lots of books for David in Australia and, and New Zealand, where I was residing at that time. And I thought, well, you know, instead of selling someone else's books, why well, it's about time I wrote my own. And someone said, when you write your own book, um, you know, it will certainly help your consulting business. And uh, it's proven to be true. And um, for a couple of reasons, not not just promotional or, or, or business development reasons, but it's actually quite cathartic. Uh, because, you know, you've got all this knowledge out there. I mean, it's, it, you can imagine a sort of like a huge canvas and there are so many authors, consultants out there with um, opinions about business development, technology, um, people management, culture, leadership, you name it. And all with a good point to make. Um, and, y- y- you know, a, a, t- a time comes when you want to capture the essence of what you believe resonates with you and your clients most of all. Um, and so uh, the first book I wrote was, uh, in 2000, uh, and that um, had a, a fairly catchy title called Why Lawyers Should Eat Bananas. And I was always told by one of my mentors, you know, if you're going to write a book, try and have a, a sexy title, something that captures the yeah. attention. And, and it did. Right. Now, I went down the yeah. self-publishing route. And at the time, I, I had no idea how it would go. But it was basically a book that had a, a hundred ideas to help lawyers get more out of their business and more out of life. Um, yeah. It was cathartic because it sort of enabled me to centralize all my thinking and put it into a book. Um, and, and, you know, in many ways, the, the book becomes um, I, am, I have to keep reading it to remind myself what I've written <laughs> and, I, and you know you go back and you say oh I actually that was expressed quite well um, so I'm kind of teaching right. myself in the process it forces you to research right. um, to articulate clearly what it is that you want to say while giving credit to in the bibliography to people who've inspired you so um, you that was the first one and then the, the second one uh, got picked up by a publisher in the UK. It was an adaptation of the first one. So it's the only book I've actually gone with a publisher on. The third book was 2011, which was a series of interviews that I, I ran with uh, leaders um, uh, in the legal services industry, some of whom had actually left and, and had escaped, genuinely had escaped. Oh, wow. um, and I, then I'd been suffering writer's block for about 10 years, which really is inexcusable. Uh, but eventually COVID came along and gave me a kick up the proverbial. And I thought, look, you know, it, it's time, it's time to write again. And, and the process was, um, I find, I found the last book actually quite hard. Uh, there were times I wanted to throw my laptop out the window. Um, and you know, it was really an exercise in, in asking myself, what is it that you want to say and say in a simple way? Because I never set out to write a book that was full of um, uh, management speak and waffle. I wanted something that was uh, clear and uh, got beyond all the hype and came down to brass tacks. And so rule of thumb is I try and write a book that a 15-year-old would understand. Um, and at the, the risk of oversimplification, I hope the latest book has, has actually done that. But it's not just my musings, uh, Ben. It's also... Um, uh, embroidered by interviews with 10 legal professionals, all of whom are leading in their own particular styles in the trenches every single day. So I think that adds some foliage to the, to the, the roots and the branches. Oh my goodness. Such, such, um, such, such a great picture to be painted. Let's get to that book right now. Just one quick reflection. You know, I, I love your point about having, going back to your old books and reminding yourself, uh, what you had written. I have a daily journal practice and even if, if you, for all of those who write, who have a journal practice, a daily journal practice, I'm sure this, this has happened to you, but you'll go back a year from now and not only will you be surprised about some insight and you're like, wow, I'm a lot smarter than, than you, than, than I thought I was in a weird way. It's very, it's also awakening to see that the problems that you were journaling about a year ago have, have completely lost any traction you've even forgot about them most of the time and in a weird way you know today's problems i i tend to remind myself and i just laugh at myself that in a year from now i probably won't even be thinking about them let alone in in six months from now so it's uh i i, I just had to plug that because it's a it's 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 a beautiful it's a beautiful little vignette there <laughs> Let me let me tell you something. It is a, a nice vignette. Let me tell you something too that behind me on my shelves. I've also got my journals, which I've been keeping now for over twenty five years. Wow! Um, and as I was putting the book together, I went back into the into that journal to see if what I'd written in you know in in nineteen ninety eight was still relevant. 
And some of the stuff in there is really profound and really relevant wow. today. And, um, you know, if, if, uh, while I'm talking to you, I just want to read you this because this only happened to me last week, but, um, uh, I've got a copy here of my first book. And go if ahead, you just go ahead, me, um, <laughs> be well. Um, this was given to me because I actually ran out of copies and I was at a conference in Australia last week and someone kindly gave me a copy of my mm -hmm. book. The only one I've got is actually, um, is actually, uh, in a frame. So I can't actually read it, but now I've got this one, I can read it. And, um, so I wrote this in 2000. Okay. And okay. at the end of the first chapter, this is what I wrote. So I wrote this in 2000. Um, it, and I wrote, um, under the subheading, the future, I wrote, what we do know is that the legal profession today is changing rapidly. Nothing seems certain anymore. Mergers, takeovers, and redundancies are all commonplace in what has become a ruthless business world, the legal business included. To survive in this new environment, firms need to have a culture that is flexible enough to embrace change, yet still maintain traditional values. The successful mm -hmm. firms will be those that put their people first, and the rest, client loyalty, staff commitment, quality of service, and profit will follow. Tell me what's changed in 23 years. Wow. <laughs> not much. In some, in some sense, not much. It's, um, it's, uh, it's very interesting. Another way of saying that is I think that question is still highly relevant, you know, and I think that that is still a call to where we can actually go today. Um, in, in certain, in certain ways. It's, um, it's a, it's a really great prompt. Let's, let's bring in the, uh, let's bring in the new book. You know, you were telling me off the, off camera, that there was yeah. a um, that there was a prompt to you, and it was around the consulting practice that, that you had been carrying. Do you want to tell a little bit about what brought this book out of you? What what's the muse that uh, that that shook you, sure. um, or however that is the the, the muse yeah, that touches yeah. you on the on the on the uh, on the shoulder, as it were. Well, it was, uh, it was, if you like, a professional frustration born out of 25 mm. years of consulting with firms, going in and, and finding that there was a, a barrier that sort of came down that, that lawyers, particularly lawyer leaders or partners of firms, um, were very good at being lawyers, but very poor uh, business people. And so they were conscientious in their approach to running their operations in a more effective and efficient way. And so we've seen the growth of practice managers. Uh, business managers, CEOs, administrators, you call them what you like, depending on their degree of um, authority and, and capability. Um, and that led to a situation which I regard as firms being uh, almost overly managed, almost micromanaged, and underled. Uh, and you, uh, you, you can't have management without leadership. Uh, and yet these firms were, you know, the thing where well, we're managing it, but you're not leading it, you know. And they say, well, you know, what does that mean? We've got a managing partner. To me, leadership is not about position. It's more about disposition. It's how you behave uh, as uh, a leader, as a, a senior person. You don't have to be senior either to be a leader. Um, and so uh, I, I sort of came to the realization that, um, you know, what needed to be grappled with and understood uh, was this concept of leadership. Now, um, as I was writing, I was aware that there were well over 15,000 books in print apparently on leadership in, in, in the business section of Amazon. And, um, you know, anyone's free to go and order a book on leadership if they want to. But most legal professionals, um, I don't think, understand the concept of leadership. And I think it's a concept that's undervalued. Uh, and I think that the words management and leadership have used, been used interchangeably, and yet they are different concepts. And so um, I thought we have to deal with this. And I, I, at the time, I really couldn't see any other books on leadership for law firms out there. And I thought, well, from that point of view, this, this has got this has got legs. If I can dispel this myth around what leadership is, and I think one of those myths is the idea that you know um, to be a leader you have to be a partner. Not at all. Uh, I've come across plenty of partners who are not leaders. Their behaviours are not consistent with leaders. Often they're only in it because they're good black letter lawyers, but their behaviours are poor. They can't communicate with people very well. Sometimes they're not even very good with clients. Um, the, the idea of having some kind of long-term vision is a complete mystery to them. Um, and at the end of the day, their outlook is very much short term. So these issues needed to be challenged. And one of the contentions I make in the book is that we have to... Um, confront, I think, entrenched beliefs um, that propel our firms if we are actually going to deal with this issue of leadership. Um, and so what is leadership? It raises the question that you ask a 100 different lawyers will come up with 
different answers. Um, and, and you know, my, my view is that, you know, for, for a lot of people, it's a rather sort of nebulous concept. Um, there are so many definitions out there. And I, I do believe that uh, cons- leadership within not just the legal services sector, but um, around the world in the business sector is being redefined and has been rede- has been being redefined for about the past 25 years. Um, we're moving away from the old command and control, the idea that the purpose of the business is simply to make a profit for the shareholders. And I think that whilst the fundamentals of leadership have largely re- remained the same, the expectations on leaders have changed. Uh, and therefore, leaders are having to factor into uh, their decision making, uh, all the interests of their stakeholders. You've heard of the phrase, the triple bottom line, for argument's sake, which is a phrase that was coined by John Elkington. Um, um, which um, basically points to the fact that a purpose of a business there is is not just to make profit. And, um, you know, I love that phrase by Peter Drucker, who says, you know, um, profit for a business is like oxygen for a human being. You know, um, you need it to survive if you're to be successful. But if you think your sole purpose in life is about breathing, then you're missing out on something. Um, and so, you know, yes. the notion here is that, you know, if, if you, um, David Mace used to say, if you're only in the law to make a profit, then you might as well be in the oldest profession in the world. <laughs> so, you know, um, and there's a point there, you know, and I think that, right. you know, leadership, people don't get inspired to go and work for a law firm just to make money. You know, we need to pay the bills. I get that. But there's a host of other businesses that you can go into. What's special about law? And I think law provides an opportunity for you to actually make a real difference in the world. Um, and, um, you know, we talk about, you know, all the problems in the world. We, we're lucky to live in countries, you and I, where there is a rule of law. Uh, and to that extent, that enables, you know, the wheels of commerce to go round. And I believe the purpose of every um, law firm and lawyer is is to help people get along with each other and get ahead in life. Uh, and it's that simple. That's the why that we get out of bed every day is to do that. Sure. And I think the, the, the principles of leadership are built on that right, right from the very outset. Um, and, and that philosophy, I think, um, helps distinguish today's leaders from the ones in the past who, you know, the knee-jerk reaction is to say, are we winning? You know, how much profit are we making per partner? And that's the metric that so often traditionally firms have looked at, which doesn't pay um, uh, at really any mileage to how effective are we as leaders at all so um, that's the foundation I think that that uh, it, I've tried to put in place in, in the book there and you know the definition that I like can I share it with you it's from one of, of the course, books on please. the show here but, but it's um there's a there was a book written out there years ago called the leadership challenge by um Kuzis and Posner, uh, two American mm-hmm. authors, and probably regarded as one of the best books on leadership. And, you know, I read a lot for my clients. My library's full of books. Some, some are really good. Some are perhaps not so good. Um, but I really like what they had to write. And um, this was their definition, de- one of the definitions they put in their book. The most significant contribution leaders make is not simply to today's bottom line. It's to the long-term development of people and institutions so that they can adapt, change, prosper, and grow. And the three words in that definition that I like, Ben, are contribution, long-term, and people. And uh, I'm not talking about acquisition, short-term, and profit. You get the distinction, okay? We do, yes, absolutely. And you've reached a stage in your life, you were telling me now, where you've suddenly, um, you know, you're in, around the age of 40, life starts to look different. Um, and I recently, as I was researching my book, came across a fascinating book uh, by David Brooks called The Second Mountain, in which oh. he says that, you know, our life is often made up of two mountains. The first one is all about acquisition and, get, you know, getting money and status. And yet when we get there, we say, oh, is that all? You know, there's got to be more to life than this. And so the second mountain we go through is where we sort of look at life through a different lens. And it's less focus on acquisition, but more on contribution and seeing how we can use our skills to make a difference in the world. So, you know, I try and factor that into the thinking as well of uh, the, the, the clients that I'm working with when they're thinking about leadership. You know, take stock of where you're at in your life because priorities do change with maturity the older you grow. Let me... There's so many entrances to everything that you said. Let me ask you a question about today's typical leader and maybe some of the some of the negative repercussions of today's leadership. 
Um, I'm sure you've thought about this because really what you're advocating for is is a new definition around leadership, specifically within the legal, legal industry. And, um, and we're going to get into some of the positives and, ben- and benefits of this. But what's going on with today's leaders? What are some of the symptoms, the negative symptoms, per se, uh, that are going on? Firms are still making money, certainly, even if it is getting harder and profits and that's basically around the world. Profit margins are shrinking while um, while clients are getting more difficult to acquire and all the rest of it. But do you see any other negative symptoms of today's sort of core leadership right down the middle? What What is being defined uh, today um, as, as being a leader within a law firm? Yeah, there's... Um... Uh, there's a, a, uh, an author, a professor in the UK called Professor Laura Emson, who, who writes on leadership and professional service firms. She talks about power politics and prima donnas. And, uh, you know, when you think about what's, what's wrong with the leadership in, in a lot of firms, it's often a focus around those three things, uh, prima donnas, power and politics. And, uh, the, the impact of that, uh, is that it, it basically pisses people off. I mean, particularly people who want to uh, join a firm, they don't want to see fighting around the board boardroom table. They, they want a, an environment to grow their career, uh, not be treated uh, as kids uh, and not have to be subject to the old command and control methodologies that still a lot of firms rule their firms by. Um, and so uh, what I'm seeing is, is um, you know, a, a reassessment of uh, the governance of firms, because I think some, depending on, on, on the size of firms, obviously, the larger the firm, the more important governance is. But even in small, like four partner firms that often I work with, you know, I'll go in and say, who's in charge here? And they look around the table, and no one's really in charge. Sometimes they don't even have a, a managing partner or an executive partner. And I'm not suggesting that that's that's important, but there needs to be obviously um, a decision-making process that is streamlined. And if the partners aren't interested in managing or leading the business, then they've got to be prepared to to give away responsibility uh, with a mandate to a CEO or a senior business manager who, who's got the experience and the savvy to be able to to run the firm while they're left to do what they want to do, i.e., be lawyers. So I, I think we're still grappling with this issue of, of governance and um, uh, the devolution of power and, and how is this firm going to be run in a way uh, that best meets the expectations of all our share, uh, all our stakeholders uh, including you know the partners and, and I think that's that's the big thing for me is is that that recognition that um, you know the decisions that you make in the uh, partnership room um, are not just about you, uh, the owners of the business, but they're about um, your people, uh, your clients, and, and other stakeholders that have a vested interest in seeing the firm succeed. And that requires, I think, partners to put on a new set of, uh, of lenses uh, and see their business in a different way from perhaps the way that you know the, the people they grew up with, who are their mentors, um, used to view traditional practice. So I think that, to my mind, that that I think is one of the key things. Yeah. Let me ask you about the issue before we get into uh, the call and the and the new mountain that that we're being called in, uh, in the book. Let me ask about the idea of culture and leadership and the cross section between those two. Uh, Peter Drucker, of course, famously said, "Culture, culture eats strategy for breakfast." Um, yeah. And over the last however many years, 30-something years that you've been consulting, there is something. Culture is really um, the culmination of people together, right? Um, as, they, um, as they play with one another, um, as they play within one another, and of course, politics and all the rest of it. To what extent does culture, um, what, what, is, what is the leverage point here of culture vis-a-vis leadership specifically? Um, it's an amorphous question, but I'm sure you'll handle it um, uh, elegantly. Yeah. yeah. How does where where does culture land here in the in the in the paradigm of driving and reinforcing the current uh, models of le- leadership? Um, uh, off the bat, I would say culture is a result of leadership, um, and uh, right. I think that you know the the leaders obviously help shape that through their policies. 
their philosophies, uh, uh, their ideologies, and their, proce- their, their, their um, procedures that they want to put in place. Um, and if I could, you know, cite an example um, from my book, you know, I mentioned that I'd interviewed, you know, ten legal professionals. Um, yeah. There's a young man by the name of Demetrio Zima, who is the um, founder and the boss of a firm in Australia, Law Squared. Uh, they uh, recently set up. Uh, he's one of those lawyers that became disillusioned with the traditional model and decided that he could do better. Uh, and and so he set out, I think, to to shape a culture uh, based on a new set of values and a, an, an ideology that was absent in in the typical sort of traditional firm that he grew up in. Um, they've expanded quickly. Um, they've got offices now in London, um, in Melbourne, Sydney. Um, and just opened in New Zealand this last week as well, um, which is great. Now, uh, you know, when I interviewed him, you know, he's run, really running his firm uh, along um, some very savvy business principles. But, you know, the culture there is very much um, uh, evident in the sense that they're putting people right at the centre of it. And I think when we talk about culture, culture is defined by people. It's not defined by so much strategies. But I think if you've got policies in place that make it easier for people to to to, to do the task that's required, um, that creates a, a work environment where um, there is uh, mutual respect, where people in, enjoy working, you know, that is, I think, actually central uh, uh, to um, the happiness and welfare of a firm. And I think it's also, to a, to a degree, a point of distinction as well. You know, a recruit might be looking to join a firm. What's different about your firm? Well, this is how we work here. This is the feel. And, you know, and you've probably been into loads of firms and interviewed people over the years. And, you know, you get kind of going through the reception, you get a feel for it. That it's just the director of first impressions who might be in the reception area. You can tell whether they're friendly or whether they're having a bad day or whether they're cold or whether they're overly formal, all those kind of things. The clothes that they wear, you know, they probably, you know, give people an indication in terms of the style. So, um, so I think, you know, I don't know if I've answered that question um, as well as I could do, but I think, you know, leadership is is inevitably tied to culture. And I think the leaders are the ones responsible for shaping the culture. And I think at the very heart of culture is people, which is why um, leaders have to be putting people right at the heart of their, I think, their, their decision making. Yeah. So let's get to the book now, and maybe we can go. I know that there are sort of four principles that you are sort of laying out the book of a, of a new type of leadership. So we've talked. Where have we been in this in this conversation? We've talked about some of the symptoms of the of of the current leadership model and and some of the uh, negative symptoms that's coming out. We talked just really briefly about how culture and leadership work together, um, and now you have a new vision. You have a new vision for some of the principles. Um, do you want to lay those out and really kind of the heart of the <laughs> heart of the practice and the heart of the matter yeah. of the book? Yeah, well, I should explain the title really because the heart the heart of practice. Sorry. I called it that because um, I believe leaders should be at the heart of your your practice or your legal business. Uh, it's the heartbeat yeah. that really dictates everything, not management. Um, uh, and uh, secondly, the idea of the heart. Um, uh, connotes a, a degree of, of compassion. You know, it's not just um, making decisions with your mind, but also with your heart as well, which wow. uh, certainly the younger generation seem to appreciate um, uh, more and more. Uh, in terms of the um, the whole concept of leadership, I th- I, I've suggested in my book that there are four, four dimensions um, and that um, uh, those four dimensions are self, self, self-leadership, uh, secondly, people leadership, thirdly, business leadership, and fourthly, community leadership. And I think uh-huh. firms need to be uh, looking at how they lead in each of those four areas. And my contention is that if you miss any one of those areas out, then you're not going to lead as well as you could do. One of the things I like do- doing is baking. I've become a bread baker in the past few years, not because of COVID. I was doing it long before sourdough baking became trendy. Um, but, exactly. Uh, you needed know, to say that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and no pun on the word need either. But um, uh, sure. the uh, fl- uh, bread needs four ingredients, um, flour, salt, water, yeast. Mm. And if you leave one of the ingredients mm-hmm. out, um, you're not going to get the loaf mm-hmm. that you wanted and your bread's not going to rise. Yes. Uh, using that as a metaphor, in the same way, I, I'm making the contention that um, if you are, say, for example, uh, you've got good lawyers there who are good with their people, so that's 
good self-leadership, good people leadership, but they're absolutely crap at uh, running their firm as a business. So there's no um, business leadership. Uh, they might be doing their bit for the community. They'll struggle. You know, nice people, but the business ain't going anywhere. Conversely, you can um, have firms that have invested heavily in business management, and so therefore they're attempting to lead their businesses well. Um, but maybe maybe they've got partners there who um, – uh, break the rules, who behave badly, um, who are abusive or whatever. That completely lets the team down. Doesn't matter, you know, what the logo says or what the uh, website looks like or the snazzy offices you may have. If you, if your leaders aren't setting an example, then again, it's going to undermine all your efforts. And so, efforts needs to concentrate in each of these four areas. Now, I've tried to illustrate each of the four areas with a, a principle. Now, listen, none of this is rocket science, okay? It's not new. Mm-hmm. I'm often speaking to the converted. Many of your listeners will probably be nodding and saying, well, yeah, we know this. But how easy or difficult is it to actually apply it in practice? This is the issue, okay? So what I'm going to say to you is not particularly revelatory, but bear with me. So principle number one, when it comes to self-leadership, all I'm saying here is before you lead others, learn to lead yourself, the second principle in terms of leading people is treat people as you would like to be treated yourself. The third principle, as far as business is concerned, is run your firm as a business entity. And the fourth principle in terms of community leadership is help solve some of the world's problems. Okay? So can I just re- revisit each of those four individually briefly? Would you like me to do that? Absolutely. 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 Before you do, I, I have no idea whether or not you you know this. There is there are theories, uh, particularly one called uh, integral theory, and this is about being holistic. And what I hear from you is an idea of being more holistic in your leadership. Um, everybody, and and here's where the rubber meets the road. Everybody can be um, very good at. Um, managing their own mental health or they're uh, really good at exercising and keeping their body, but they might fail whenever it comes to showing up for their family or their finances might be in a complete disarray. And I think mm-hmm. what you're calling is that an integrative approach that manages four different dimensions and takes it as holistically and makes sure that recognizing that each one affects the other that's really what I'm getting as the makeup of your call, trying to be more integrative, trying to be more holistic, and recognizing that all of the pieces of the bread sort of come together to make the whole loaf, right? And you need all of that to, to make so. all of that. Yes, Very much right. so. And, and, and I'd also like to give a plug here for um, the late and great Steve Kiva. I don't know if he was a writer you ever came across, but he was a journalist yeah. with the American Bar Association who sadly passed away. Uh, about 20 years ago, and um, he wrote uh, a very influential book for me, which um, you watching me on screen can probably see above my head on my sh- uh, shelf there. It's called Transforming Practices, and it's yes. co- it was called Finding Joy and Satisfaction in the Legal Life, and that very much advocated uh, a much more holistic approach to um, leading your life as a lawyer, uh, which uh, I thought was um, profound and uh, uh, ahead of its time in many ways. Um, and, and I still meet many people who are in the law who've never heard of the book. And, you know, if you still get, get your hands on it, it really is a, a compelling read and pinpointed right back then why so many lawyers are unhappy because they have difficulty in, t- in adopting an holistic approach to running their lives uh, and dealing with all the, the things they've got to think about, you know, which, uh, yeah. which I think needed to be said at the time uh, because you know being a lawyer ain't easy uh, both in the office and then of course you've got you know the things that happen away from the office it's called life you know kids mortgage you name it whatever Um, so yes I am advocating a much more integrated approach Um, and uh, and so if if we look at each of those four very briefly um, uh, self-leadership uh, I, I think, as I suggested, the principle here, before you lead others, learn to lead yourself, okay? And the reason I say that is that there are some very successful lawyers there who I don't think have ever really had a hard look in the mirror 
and really learnt to um, uh, lead themselves well enough. And I'd turned to various people I interviewed for the book to say, you know, how do you lead yourself? Uh, what keeps you on track? And the responses I got from some of my interviewees uh, were a range of things uh, across, um, say, for example, uh, personality profiles to help uncover the blind spots, um, getting feedback from uh, fellow professionals, not just necessarily in law, but, you know, in a, one interviewee I talked to who belongs to an entrepreneurs club, learning about how other people respond to the challenges of the day um, and, and taking on board those learnings. Um, also, you know, one person said, um, you know, stop trying to be perfect. I mean, lawyers suffer from this perfection syndrome. I think it was Churchill who said, you know, perfection is the enemy of progress. So we've got to stop sort of trying to be so perfect all the time. And I think check in with ourselves about our, our motivation. I always say to people, think of yourself like a business. You get out of bed every day. Imagine you've got limited behind your name, you know, and in the same way, you know, you conduct yourself, you know, like a business really should do in, in a in holistic way. But check your motivations, you know, ask yourself, what's your why? Why are you doing this? You know, are you simply tolerating it? Do you feel trapped in it? Or can you find that sweet spot for yourself um, where you, you find work a joy? And, and the tragedy of all of this, and it's not just a reflection on law, but I think society generally, is that for many of us, we we, we still, whether it's the first mountain or the second mountain in life, we look for that sweet spot where it's the coincidence of finding work that we, we love doing, uh, that makes the best use of our skills, um, that uh, makes us happy and ideally pays us, you know, uh, uh, an, an income as well. Um, it's the sort of adaptation of the Ikigai principle. Um, sure. and, and, and it's like, you know, there are people out there who, who might say, and I was one of them, you know, when I was a criminal defense lawyer, um, I didn't like my clients. Uh, I can't say that I particularly enjoyed my work. I was reasonably good at advocacy, but the pay was rubbish. So one out of four really wasn't very good enough. I was a long way off my sweet spot. Okay. So it's like, you know, having that conversation with yourself or engaging a mentor or a coach to sort of help you, um, uh, a counselor, you know, to, to uh, you know, kind of find that area that brings you joy in your life. And I think when you found that spot, you're going to be in a much better position to lead yourself um, before you start leading other people. So that's the first thing. And that's, uh, I, th I think, a fairly consistent message that came over with those that I interviewed in the book. So um, the, the next um, principle is about uh, treating people um, as you would like to be treated. Um, and in the book there, I prefaced um, uh, the chapter with a, uh, an article from the Law Society Journal in New South Wales, Australia, which was printed in 2017, I think it was. And the headline was, I'm not a resource, I'm a human. Now, I don't know who wrote that article. I think it was, it, they said right. it was a senior associate in a, in a commercial law firm that dispelled the notion that being agile and using all this management talk was in some way going to impress the new generation. What this writer wrote, uh, and with the permission of the Law Society Journal, I, I put this article and reproduced it in the book because I thought it was bang on, was basically saying, treat us as intelligent human beings, not as kids in a class. Uh, and don't try and sort of uh, um, encourage us to sort of toe the old line with promises of money and career advancement when you say it and you might have dress down Friday or mental wellness awareness week when at the end of the day we've still got partners here who who uh, you know are, are behaving badly towards women all those sort of things it's just window dressing you know we've got to get beyond that so um, uh, what I'm really suggesting here is that you know if you're really serious about um, leading people you've got to treat them uh, as uh, human beings and not as resources and you know there are a number of I guess some um, uh, qualities needed to try and demonstrate that empathy, emotional intelligence, um, uh -huh. ability to, to communicate and connect with people, not just communicate. Uh -huh. um, and, uh, you know, treat, treating people in, in a way that um, makes them feel important. I saw a, a really interesting quote on LinkedIn the other week from someone, I can't remember where it was now, but, but she said, when I'm talking to a manager, um, he makes me feel that he's important. When I'm talking to a leader, oh. he makes me feel that I'm important. Get the difference. Right. Uh, yes. I'm sure right. you and your listeners yes. 
we, we've all worked for people right. at some stage in our careers where our bosses have been basically dickheads, people who, you know, just they, they, they couldn't lead a, a horse to water sort of stuff. So, you know, the people aspect of this, I think, is, is really important. So that's principle number two. Treat people as you would like to be treated. Principle number um, number three is um, uh, run your uh, business, uh, run your firm as a business entity. Uh, and I alluded to earlier, you know, one of the difficulties I think a lot of firms have had is, is struggling in this area. And I think a lot of it does rest on on governance. And, and this transition uh, away from being like a, a gentleman's club uh, towards an integrated business where uh, power and responsibility is spread uh, where it needs to be spread, as it were. And um, I think there are a number of tips and tools here that are readily available for firms, um, and they would be beneficial if only they'd have the courage to use them. Now, one of the, the finest examples I had in, in the book, I think, of uh, someone who really turned the firm around from being a gentleman's club that was a conservative traditional approach, you know, earning average uh, profitability, uh, was really going nowhere, um, was a chap called Robert Camp, who was for a number of years the managing yeah. partner of a UK firm called Stephen Scone. And um, he t- managed to turn the firm around, firstly by refining the governance system and engaging two non-executive directors to come in and advise the board. And he said, you know, when I took over the helm as a managing partner, all partners felt, and there were 20 of them, I believe, all partners felt they had an equal say in every decision that the firm made, which is no way to run a business. Right. So he, he changed that and, and streamlined it and enabled some decisions to be made uh, and and also was you know very clear about re-creating uh, a firm that was going to appeal to the younger generation. He, he was very clear about that. And one way that he managed to pull that off was to introduce the concept of um, employee ownership, something that we can't do here in New Zealand. Um, but in the UK, where the market's a bit more liberalised, they're able to do that. So he developed a, 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 an ownership policy called Sconership, and that gave mm-hmm. all the people skin in the game, a vested interest in making sure the firm yeah. succeeded. And that brought people together and I think was very, very powerful. So uh, it's a, a really good case study, I think. And, and there are lots of examples there of things that firms can do, I think, to to really um, add focus and clarity to uh, the direction in which a firm is going uh, and, and to really sort of bolster the culture uh, and get past this sort of conservative traditional approach uh, that many firms have inherited um, in years gone by. I mean, one of the issues, too, that he identified and many of my other um, contributors in the book identified as the issue of succession. You know, I'm doing a lot of work at the moment with emerging leaders, and they're saying, well, I don't know if I want partnership uh, because what does it involve? No one's told me. Um, what are the risks and responsibilities associated with it? So, you know, I think getting this part of the equation right is is really important. Um, and one of the, the things in the book I advocate is something from our friends Kuzis and Posner uh, is adopting uh-huh. what I call a leadership charter. Firms talk about having a partnership deed, which sets out the liabilities um, and responsibilities of partners, but it doesn't touch on leadership at all. A leadership charter basically sets out the behaviours that are expected of uh, all leaders, not just lawyer leaders, but executive leaders in a firm, and they cover five key areas. Um, and I'll, I'll share them briefly with you, but one is encourage the heart. There's that heart word again. Encourage people uh, to work from their heart and, and to give their best. Secondly, enable others to act, so give them the tools of professional development to get on and do the job. Thirdly, challenge the process. You know, stasis is no longer an option. Challenge the status quo, right. encourage people to rattle the cage. Fourthly, inspire a shared vision. You know, let's make this exciting, guys. You know, what are we trying to do and create here? And that's what Demetrio Zima has done, is created something really quite exciting for the younger yep. generation. Um, and lastly, model the way. Set an example um, in terms of what you do around the office and how you interact with people. And I think, you know, in those five uh, pillars there of a, a leadership charter, you know, I haven't yet to come across a partner in a law firm who disagrees with any of that, but they just yeah. haven't, you know, formalized it. So there's a tool there that you can do. You've just got to hold people accountable. 
So that's principle number three is run your business as a business entity. And I'm not really talking here about, uh, you know, just the cosmetics of are we a limited company or a limited partnership or a traditional partnership. You know, that's yeah. often done for tax reasons. I'm just talking about the, the leadership fabric that defines right. the culture. Uh, right. And which brings me to the, the last area, which some firms might see as a bit optional, um, which is th- this aspect of community leadership. Uh, and that's helped solve some of the world's problems. And the reason I advocate this is that, you know, we've seen the growth of ESG, environmental social governance, increasingly around boardroom tables these days and ignore it at your peril. You know, I was at a conference last week in Australia, the uh, Australasian Law Practice Management Association conference. And one of the presenters there was, was talking about this is an issue of accountability for all leaders. And that, you know, if we're not being seen to play our part in helping solve some of the world's problems, you'll be called out. Um, and so there are tips and tools there to help you uh, address some of these issues, these issues covering not just sustainable policies in terms of um, dealing with climate change or environmental issues, but also going further in terms of um, formalizing some of the things that firms may have done for many years, like volunteering, raising money for charities and doing pro bono work as well. Um, it goes beyond greenwashing. Uh, it goes it goes f- far beyond just, um, as I say, um, window dressing. I think it's got to be part of the fabric of the culture that you've got to mean it uh, and, and want to do it. And I think this appeals to younger generations more than, you know, old farts of my age who might be at the stage of their careers where they're saying, I'm too old for this. And if you are, then get out of the way. Let younger people take over the management of this kind of stuff and make it happen and and formalize the policies around your community leadership so that it is transparent, that people can see the good work that you're doing. You know, it's interesting. I I once went to um, facilitate a retreat for a firm quite a big firm. Uh, and I was saying, you know, what are, what are we doing here in terms of uh, contributing to the community? And all these partners, there were about 30 of them, they were all doing things individually that none of their other partners actually knew about. And um, when we looked at all the, the flip charts around the room, people going, like, wow, we're doing a hell of a lot for the community that even we didn't know about. So, you know, collecting all yeah. that goodness that benevolence that does exist um, in law firms, because essentially they are good people, and and trying to capture it in a way that's um, uh, planned, um, formalized a little bit more, and, and in a way that can be reported to the community as well. You know, and Stephen Scone are an example. They um, that every year they um, come up with a, a report called Giving Back. They put it on their website, uh, and they report there and say this year our team have, for example, um, implemented 100% use of reusable energy, saved so many trees in the world, uh, reduced our carbon footprint, done so much in terms of pro bono donations to charities, and we've planted so many trees. Those kind of things, um, which I think it's really good to have some transparency around those issues, uh, because for, for too long, I think firms have been opaque in so many ways, not least their finances. Um, and so, you know, there is a, an initiative, again, that can be ad- adopted and adapted from uh, firms like Stephen Scone. So that's principle number four, help to solve some of the world problems. So those are my four ingredients, uh, Ben, if you like. And um, I think they certainly give a lot of firms uh, things to think about. And as I've said to you, I think intuitively they, they know these princ- they know these principles. Yeah. They know there is a responsibility to lead in these areas, but it's kind of coordinating their efforts in a way that kind of makes sense. Yeah. We... Um... This podcast was never uh, meant to get to certainly the heart of the book. And I know that we've left out so, so, so much, um, including some of the great stories that I think that you've had uh, the chance to map. Um, and certainly I'd uh, push everybody. I will be going out and getting that book. There's already I've, I've taken many a mental note. Uh, I would have written them down, except I was making sure that I was paying attention to you. Um, there is so much in here to to start. And I think. Many people struggle with the first step and getting really started. They're inspired by the vision. I want to bring it back to something that I had said previously about, um, you know, an integrative approach to to personal development. And one of my favorites is integral theory that you know looks at how are you doing yourself for the for for your interior. Uh, um, personally and and community it's very similar to to yours they have a they have a phrase um that says clean up to wake up wake up to open up 
open up, to show up, show up, then grow up. And the point, of course, is that the lead domino is it starts with you and it starts with cleaning up your own shadow. Every to use psychological Jungian speak yeah. shadow and all the rest of it. But you see, you see the point there. Do you want to speak a little bit to first steps here and what helps um, firms really kick off? Is there something that in in your in your wisdom and in researching the book you have found as a good measure to start, or is every is every path? Uh, to, to, to growing up, um, to use that, to that, that terminology or having a more holistic, integrative leadership approach is everything different. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd love to end with this question here. Yeah, I, I think, uh, it starts with the conversation. Uh, and I think that conversation, uh, can be had, um, at all levels of the firm. And I think sometimes those conversations have never taken place. Uh, people can open up and express their, their fears, their concerns, perhaps they're suffering from low self-esteem or or maybe not everything's well at home, but they don't feel they can discuss it with their colleagues for whatever reason. And I found that when uh, safe conversations can be had, then uh, people can actually get rid of a, a lot of stuff if, if it's out in the open uh, and it encourages them to reflect in a positive way in terms of where they're at with their lives and their careers. And I think those conversations can snowball uh, over time and people can gain greater confidence and self-confidence uh, as a result of that uh, and take things to the next level. But I think in, until we're prepared to have honest and frank conversations about you know, how can we make this better for ourselves individually and collectively, then we're going to be dictated to by... Our policies, our procedures will be prisoners to this, uh, this business model and this, this profession, which, uh, unless we change it, is going to fast become uh, irrelevant and outdated. Yeah. The irony, of course, while you were talking is partnerships are supposed to enable communications. Partnerships are supposed to almost even, um, if you are in a relationship, you know, the term today is to use a partnership and being partners as, as a way to sort of point at the fact that we're in this together and this is a safe space for this. So in a weird way, you know, the ground is already seeded. It's just maybe coming back to what was maybe always meant to be there or finding the original sort of seed of what the original partnership was supposed to do in, in a, in a very strange way and not having it, uh, degenerate into something that well, maybe it was never meant to be. I don't. I don't know. I. I was just that to sort of flicked across my screen when you were talking about communication and having the trust to do it. Here's a couple of analogies for you. In some ways, partnerships are like a marriage, and sometimes they break oh, down. But you need communication and connection to keep it going. Leadership is a bit like parenting, uh, and you've got all the kids to look after, and yes, blend those two together, and that's the challenge. Yes, absolutely. Simon, tell us about the next couple of months as we come into the last quarter. Uh, tell us a little bit about how people can keep up with you. Yeah, what what are you what are you going to be doing for the rest of the year? Keep up with me. Wow. Okay. Well, um, so it, I'm in New Zealand, as you know, and so we're going into spring, thankfully. So um, and summer's yeah. just around the corner. Um, every year I run a, a small forum, and this is the fifteenth year I've run it now for about thirty wow. law firm leaders. So some are executives, some are lawyers in a beautiful place called Queenstown in the South Island of New Zealand. So I've got that coming up next month, and um, I'm looking forward to that. I'm the convener, basically, and uh, we've got, I've got um, uh, five uh, presenters there. We just go for a day, and we talk about the kind of issues we're, we're talking about today through conversation, through some presentation. And because it's a small group, a small forum, it's not like a big conference that you know the audience get involved as well. So um, sure. that's um, preoccupying me in in October. Um, uh, the sort of thing I'm doing with um, uh, clients are uh, retreats, helping them get that uh, when the partners go away, facilitating those conversations I talked about, helping them gain clarity and consensus about the way forward and how they want to be in the future, which I think is a, a, a very worthwhile and important role. Um, and then in November, uh, because of COVID, I haven't been back to my native United Kingdom now for five years. Um, and I have two sibling brothers, one's in Southern California, the other one's in London. So we're going to have a reunion in Yorkshire in the north of England. So I'm going back there. Um, but I'm also, if you've got any listeners in the UK, I'm hoping to do a, a workshop in Leeds 
um, in oh. in the north of England on uh, I think it's Friday the seventeenth of November I think um, but details haven't wow. been released on that yet but the trip to the UK will be great and then it's um, back here for for summertime so um, I yes. don't think I'm going to be writing another book over the summer I'm just getting over the experience of the last one but I don't oh, know if you, were you new- took the last yes. <laughs> the last question, of course, which is when when should we be expecting your next book? Is anything percolating? I'm not, I'm not sure. You know, I haven't written a book, but I, I feel like um, once you write one, uh, you have to end up writing a few. I, I don't know. Maybe not with the uh, with the potency of a uh, of an Oscar Wilde or or, or something like this. But uh, I'm sure that there's another one in in you. Is there not? It's uh, well, I'm sure there might be. Um, and one thing I would say is, you know, writing a book is about is not about selling the books. It's uh, as I say, it's a cathartic experience. Yeah, helps gather right. your thoughts together. It becomes like a sort of really potent business card in some ways. Um, and and I have to say, quite candidly, that you know, um, sending hard copies in the mail is a pain in the butt because all the f- <sighs> sending, you know overseas and all the rest of it and it's not cheap either these days um yeah. but that's why i've had it converted to kindle as well so it's uh, it's available as a kindle book on amazon as well but um wonderful. is there another book inside of me i'm sure there is but it might not be in the next six months wonderful all right well simon thank you so much for sitting down with us we really appreciate it i loved talking about this topic i love the call to a new type of leadership a more holistic leadership and i think it's an inspiring vision and dare i say a vision that needs to be turned into a reality faster than not we absolutely are in a sort of time between worlds um we certainly know i think many of us um know what we are leaving um some of us are still gripping but um I think uh, true leaders will help us get to whatever it is that's kind of next uh, um, the um, on the other side of the oasis. And uh, I, I think the leaders that you're painting the vision for will certainly be uh, those that can sort of get us there. And, uh, and it's an inspiring vision. And it has to happen because I'm not doing anything else. So I'm staying in this industry probably until <laughs> the rest of the time. So, um, so I'm hoping that it does happen. So thank you so much. Let's hope so. And, and thank you. Thanks for inviting me on today. Yes, thank you. All right, everybody, take care. Uh, if you like this podcast, be sure to like, subscribe to the podcast. We have so many great episodes with so many great, great, holistic, integrated, um, just very thoughtful leaders from around law firms around the world. Um, I particularly uh, have loved all of our last um, our last episodes, and this one is just another one in the can that's been fantastic. So thank you so much to Simon. Uh, take care, everybody. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>